is where we're at this morning. In a moment, I'm going to begin reading in the eighth verse. So the eighth verse of Acts chapter 6. Uh, two points of clarification that maybe will help us before we dive into this. I want us to remind you that the book of Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. It deals with the life and ministry of Jesus. And so we've come through, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those Gospels deal with the physical, present, speaking, teaching, miracle-working ministry of Jesus. That's what we find out. The Gospels deal with Jesus and His ministry on earth. And what Luke is endeavoring to do in Acts is to show us how the ministry and work of Jesus continues while he, in His reign in heaven. So Acts is where we're, we're at. We're picking it up. Jesus has resurrected. He has ascended. He is reigning by His Holy Spirit through the church in the earth. We all know where this is headed, right? Do you know where all things are headed? Every bird chirp, every drop of dew, every molecule, it's all headed to bowing down before Jesus Christ. He will have first place in all things. It is the reason that things came into existence. They came into existence through Him and for Him and are sustained by Him. We know that one day all things, every single arrangement possible, as ADD as you can get, not ADD, what's the OCD? That's better. <laughs> Could there be more opposites? That's, a slip of the, that's an ironic slip of the tongue. As OCD as you can get, right? Everything will line up perfectly under the kingdom of King Jesus. That's where all of history is going. And what we've been invited into in Acts is a, is a moment of intense, of intense, I would say, growth and explosion. This is the clouds being pulled back, and it's an invasion of the kingdom of God into earth. Jesus said, I came, He came preaching a kingdom Oftentimes in parables, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, and acts for us as we're diving in and seeing what happens when the Holy Spirit comes, is us getting a small picture. This is what it's going to look like when Jesus takes first place in all things. That's what's happening in Acts. That's where we're at in context. I want to remind you as well, as we start in the eighth verse, that we've been walking through Acts. We've spent a number of months here. It's our practice as best we can to take books chronologically in order. And we have been seeing, the title we gave to this sermon series is Unconquered. In case you were curious, is history headed to Jesus having first place in all things? We are finding that his life, his death, his resurrection will not be in vain. His message, his truth, his life is unconquered. It has been in history. It will be on into the future and for all eternity. Jesus and his kingdom will be unconquered. That's what we've seen. I'm going to begin reading in the 8th verse of Acts chapter 6. I'm just going to go through the end of chapter 6. But we're going to take the story, the narrative of Stephen, in, in, a, in a chunk. And there's a lot here. So we're going to get all the way through chapter 7 today. But I'm just going to stop at the end of chapter 6 so you can catch your breath. So we, don't have, so we, we can at least push off the, the nap the nap inducement for a little bit later in the sermon, right? We'll just start with this short amount. And then I'm going to pray and we'll dive in to what God has for us today. It's the book of Acts, 6th chapter, 8th verse. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia, and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. 
But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let's pray. Father, your word tells us that you met us with mercy this morning. And it was brand new mercy, lavish mercy. How often, how often, God, we forget. We forget to be grateful. We pray that you'd stir gratefulness in our hearts. Every drink of water, every bite of food, every hug, every family relationship, a gift from you. We haven't deserved any of it. That's our confession. We confess that we are a needy people who have been recipients of mercy and of grace, undeserving. And that's where we stand. That's where we've come this morning. So God, would you stir in us proper gratefulness, a right response to a God who is almighty and powerful and holy and other, but who has become God our Father. What a gift this is. Father, over the next few moments, I pray you'd stir a particular kind of gratefulness in us, a gratefulness for your word. God, you are not like other gods. You are not like those crafted from wood who are deaf and dumb and lame. You are living and active God who speaks. You have spoken in all creation. You've spoken through the prophets. You've spoken by your Son. And you've given us a record of his work. So I pray that as we approach these words and consider them, you'd give us thankful hearts. Thank you that you've not stayed hidden, but you've determined the boundaries of our existence, that we might grope after you, we would seek and find. And God, we long to find you today. God, I need help. I pray that you would season my words with grace. We need help. Holy Spirit, come. Open eyes and dig ears and soften hearts. We might come under your word and be transformed by it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stephen is an amazing character, right? He's one of these guys that is just a full-on Renaissance man. Do you remember last week I introduced to this concept and I used a phrase that I felt like probably should use some clarification, right? We talked about the beginning of Acts chapter 6 being a sort of proto-deacon scenario. Proto, I'm taking from prototype, right? Because later we're going to see that the needs, the growing complexities of the church are met by the Spirit of God placing particular men into offices to use their giftedness to serve the church. And these guys seem like These seven Greek-speaking men who are put forth to meet the needs seem like the kind of characters that are going to be described as deacons later in the New Testament, except for a few things. 
they are profoundly powerful in this ministry. And so I say Stephen is a sort of renaissance man because he takes on a kind of persona in his story here, this narrative. We don't know how much to make sense of it. And it doesn't seem like deacons later in the New Testament take on this particular kind of ministry. So the way we find him, what is he doing? He's full of grace and power and doing great wonders and signs among the people. He's apparently teaching in the synagogue because it grows up to dispute with him. So I want you to just get a picture a little bit. Here's how we're going to frame frame our, our understanding of Scripture today. We want to get a context for Stephen. Who is he and what, what sort of conflict did he find himself in? We want to take a close look at his teaching. That'll be the second thing that we do. And then finally, we want to consider what God's purpose in his death was. How was God active and working in his death? So this characterization of Stephen is amazing, right? He is a Renaissance man, and here's what I mean. He gets up in the morning and he is just making mad waffles and eggs and like whipping up beef stew and he's serving tables. He's a maitre d' par excellence, right? Did I say that right? I was really sort of nervous about it. And maitre d' is not a woman, right? So he's, he's this guy. He's going through. He's organizing lines. He's making sure there's enough food. He's caring for widows. He's taking them under his arm. He's saying, Jim, John, how are you? The kid's okay. Everything's fine. He is running a massive, hands-on mercy ministry of the church. That's what Stephen is like. And then in his spare time, he walks around the temple just healing folks. <laughs> you got a problem, you'll all solve it. Right? That's, that's Stephen. He's like, come Come to me, lame, healed, performing great signs and miracles. He has as much signs and miracle working power, it seems like, as the apostles, which is amazing. This is why he's like an alpha sort of beta version of deacons. This, isn't, this is an odd kind of guy. And if it's not enough to whip out amazing meals and care for widows and run the lines and then work miracles, he's also apparently a guy who consistently stands up in the synagogues and teaches powerfully. He's doing everything. He's doing everything. I wouldn't doubt if he had perfect hair as well, right? He just like had a great wardrobe and perfect hair and an awesome family. That's this guy probably, right? He's doing everything. We want to see the conflict that he gets himself into. You would think that a miracle-working, serving widow kind of guy, especially amongst Greek-speaking people, would be welcomed but we find very quickly that there is conflict. It says in verse 9 that those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen, I think we can infer a couple of things from this. One, that these are Greek-speaking Jews, the same kind of Greek-speaking Jews who would have been a minority and probably looked down upon, probably with sort of a disdain like, ah, they're real Jews. And they had a separate synagogue, perhaps because of prejudice, but perhaps just because they got along well and wanted to have this particular thing. And there's a synagogue of the freedmen. They're a particular kind of leaders in the Jewish world. They are those who were at one time apparently enslaved in a different land and managed to find themselves free. They got free and settled back in Jerusalem and set up what it seems like at this point is a very respectable, esteemed, powerful life of influence within the Jewish world. And there is a dispute. It seems like we can infer from, the, from this passage that Stephen was having some sort of an impact in this community. Right? No one cares until the power, until the, 
the power struggle begins, right? No one cares until the status quo starts to get challenged a little bit. And Stephen, who is a Greek-speaking man, who is set apart to minister to the widows who are being neglected, now begins speaking and doing miracles, and I believe causing a stir and having influence in this synagogue. And so they stand up to oppose him. Now, right from the start, I want you to note something. Stephen is going to be a witness to Jesus Christ in a profound sense of the word. In a profound sense of the word. And here's what I mean by that. It seems like Luke is going to go out of his way to show parallels between the way that Stephen was treated and the way that Stephen acted and the life and ministry of Jesus. And I want you to show you a few of these. What does it say? The freedmen stand up and they begin to dispute with Stephen. Apparently he was teaching. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Have you ever had one of those moments? Came with an argument that was fully worked out in your mind and you thought like, I'm just going to nail this. They're all going to say, you were so right all along. I'm so sorry for every disagreement, right? And you get into the midst of it and you realize how quickly you stumble through words and your arguments just completely fail. It's like my cousin who when he told stories, they never went anywhere. They just crashed and burned. And so my, my friends, when he started talking, used to go like this, like he was flying a plane. And as it went, they would, it was very, we were mean. They would crash it. Their arguments crash and are burning right before them. They cannot speak. Stephen has shh, 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 all of them. And doesn't this remind you a little bit of Jesus, right? Do you recall Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount? It says that he spoke in the Sermon on the Mount. And then what does it say afterward? It said, all the people were amazed at the authority with which he spoke. You know how many times the, the Pharisees came to Jesus and said like, oh, we have a conundrum now. Can an angel dance on the head of a pin? Could God make a rock big enough that even he couldn't carry, right? They're always trying to trap him and they bring this argument to Jesus. And what does it say over and over and over again? He shuts their mouths. He answers them with such wisdom and power that he shuts their mouths. And Stephen, it seems like, has been given the spirit of Jesus, at least in this particular regard. And that was the promise, right? Wasn't the promise that those who would witness would receive the power, the power of the Holy Spirit? When Jesus said, I go away, I'm going to send a comforter to you, he will take from me and give to you. And so this is the first instance where it seems like Stephen starts to take on a persona of Jesus. And we're going to see that all the way through his story. Secondly, what happens to Stephen, much like what happened to Jesus, men secretly instigate charges against him. The main charge, the same thing they charge Jesus with, right? Blasphemy. Blasphemy against God. Blasphemy against the patriarchs. He said he was before Abraham. He said he would destroy this temple. In the same way, these men, if you cannot win the argument, you begin to win this underground power struggle. They set up a kangaroo court. That's what happens. False witnesses. They stir up the people and elders. And so Stephen has to stand before this crowd. It's a mob. That's what it is. A stirred up crowd of people. This is not pleasant. This is not like three square meals and walk in and sit in a nice courtroom. This is a mob of stirred up people crying blasphemy and bringing Stephen before the leaders. And right in the midst of this, the people that they bring up, Moses and Jesus, it's interesting that they are brought up, Moses and Jesus are brought up, because as they're staring at him, I want you to get the context, because, because Stephen's sermon in a minute is amazing. 
This sermon that he gives in Acts chapter 7, could, it could like pass for like a PhD dissertation in biblical theology. It's a historical narrative that's just like, whoa, Stephen, weren't you just washing dishes? Like, how did you do this? He gives an amazing sermon, and it would be awesome if it was like with professors who would loved him. For him to deliver this against this backdrop is amazing. So it's a mob, and they're stirred up, and they're calling, crying blasphemy, and it says that they're all just staring at him. Ever just been stared at? It's way worse than being insulted sometimes, I think. Maybe I'm the only one that's awkward about that. Someone who's intimidating and you know you did something wrong and they just sit down and just stare at you. It's bad. And I know you're staring at me. That's a little awkward, but they they gaze at him. And I think it's interesting that it seems like God is God is setting up a, a place to say, Stephen, I'm with you. Stephen, I'm on your side. They bring up Moses and Jesus, and then they see in Stephen a sort of glow. His face is like that of an angel. Of course, we recall Moses, right? Went up on the mountainside, and he came down, and what? He had to have a veil over his head because his face was glowing. Jesus, Mount of Transfiguration, glowing. And not just like, oh, you have that pregnant glow. Not like, oh, I just finished a seven-day facial cleanse, and I have great skin. This is like glory of God glowing. And right from this moment, it seems, like, it seems like the Holy Spirit is setting himself in power on Stephen to show I'm with you and I'm for you. And you're on the right side of history here, Stephen. No matter what persecution comes, God himself is identifying Stephen on the side of Moses and Jesus. So that's the context. Context is Stephen standing before the mob, blasphemy, being charged. We're going to dive into the content now of his sermon. This is the longest recorded speech in all of Acts, which is pretty amazing for a deacon guy, right? Deacon guy, longest recorded sermon. And Paul makes some pretty long speeches toward the end, the last eight chapters of the book. At least three times he defends his, his apostleship and his testimony. But here in Acts chapter 7, we get this long recorded sermon. And it's amazing what's happening Stephen basically walks through the entire redemptive history of God's interaction with his people. Can you imagine being charged with blasphemy? Moses, this place, destroy the temple. And it's like Stephen saying, let me start at the beginning. Have you heard of Abraham? That's how far back he goes. He goes all the way back, and he gives us this amazing narrative. This is a chunky text, and I'm going to read it in sections, and we're going to walk through, and I want you to note a few different things. This is what happens. Stephen uses the history of God's interaction with his people to answer the charges that are brought against him. These were the charges, as best as I could sort of summarize, that are, that are brought against him. One, this group of Christians, Stephen specifically, is preaching something that is out of line with the patriarchs. So in other words, he is disrespecting our people. That's the, that's the charge that's being brought against him. Our people are being disrespected by Stephen who doesn't get it. He's disrespecting Moses as an example. The second thing that's brought against him as a charge, right? The second thing that's brought against him as a charge is the, this place of worship thing. Oh, are you going to desecrate our place of worship? Jesus said he's going to destroy the temple. Oh, no, he didn't, right? That's the kind of thing that's going on. Place. So there's people. He's going to emphasize place of worship. And then finally, every single section that he goes through, he's trying to tie Jesus back to the promise of God. 
You see Stephen's point. He's being charged with blasphemy and brought in front of this mob. And he's trying to say to them, I'm just trying to give you hope. A hope that's in line with the work of God and His people for all ages. This sermon is about people and places and promises. I think we're going to see that as we walk through it. So let me start, and we're going to go through sections as we can. Starting in verse 1 of Acts chapter 7. The high priest said, are these things so? Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. I'm going to stop there just for a moment and ask a few questions. One is, where in the world does Stephen get such amazing Old Testament knowledge, right? He's probably he's a Jewish guy, so I'm sure he was raised in this tradition to some extent. But he brings out this amazingly confident historical approach to God's redemption of his people. And I want to submit to you that as we go through this, he is simply walking in the footsteps and the teaching of Jesus. Jesus showed him this way. Jesus showed him this path to look, as a way to look at the Old Testament and to find Jesus. You see, if you or I was brought before a raging, crazy mob who was staring at you, right, and said, defend Jesus of Nazareth, we'd go to John chapter 1, maybe talk about Revelation, look through the epistles, talk about the church, the history of it. Stephen goes to the Old Testament because it's all he had. I've made this point before and I'm going to make it again. We cannot lose the Old Testament. You cannot read the New Testament and think to yourself, oh, I'm so glad we're done away with that old dusty thing. Genesis, Malachi, right? Like that's just, oh, this is built. The gospel is built on a foundation of God's work through his people, through all generations. All gospel preaching to this point in Acts is Old Testament preaching. I want us to just wrestle with that and think about it. One of the things that Acts chapter 7 did for me personally was stir in an understanding to say, like, I want to make sure I know the Old Testament. Because we all sort of know it, right? We all kind of know it. Like, Joseph, the lion's den, right? Oh, no, 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 never mind. Anybody want to be honest and just say to say they kind of meld together after a while, right? Which felt story? <laughs> Which class was I in? And I read this and I think to myself, like, no, I want to know. This is the history of God's work with his people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let me show you specifically how, how Jesus taught them to think this way with the Old Testament. Luke chapter 24. We're going to go to Luke chapter 24. This is post-resurrection. And Jesus appears to his disciples. Jesus appears to his disciples and he teaches them to look at the Old Testament through a particular lens. 
This is verse 17 of Luke 24. He said to them, so to set the context, this is Jesus speaking to people walking on the road to Emmaus, right? And at this point, they don't know who he is. And I don't know how he pulled that off. I don't know. Post-resurrection Jesus could do some cool stuff, right? He could do, he was in a glorified body, which makes me hopeful that I can do some cool stuff when, when I get that, when I get that like upgraded body. He could do some cool stuff. I don't know how he pulled it off. Maybe he had one of those, I don't know, is there a name for this? One of those glasses with the mustache? You know what those are? It's like every cheesy Charlie Chaplin like disguise. Groucho Marx thing. Yeah, so maybe Jesus is like just rolling up with one of those and they didn't know who he was. I don't know what he did. But he's walking, they don't know who he is. So he says to them, what is this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. What a, what a hilariously pathetic description of people, right? How were they? Looking sad, right? One of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? He said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. These descriptions are going to be interesting. Mighty in deed and word. Stephen did signs and wonders and disputed powerfully. Word and deed. It's going to show up later in our text. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. These things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. When they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. I want you to note Jesus' directness with them. Foolish ones, slow to believe. Verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And verse 27 is profound. It's profound. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Stephen can speak powerfully from the Old Testament concerning Jesus because Jesus taught him to do so. He said, from the beginning, God's work has pointed to me. That is the story that Stephen has picked up on in this text. With that in mind, I want you to go back to Acts chapter 6, or Acts chapter 7, and we are looking at people, place, and promises. Remember that. So in this first section, where does Stephen go? He goes straight to one of the most popular people ever, Abraham. Now, Abraham is in the Old Testament people of God Hall of Fame, right? His number's retired, isn't it? His cloak, his tunic is retired. I don't know what all the numbers are because I haven't been here only a year, but like at Doak, right, it would be sort of like, I'm going to pull some name. You ready for this? Like Charlie Ward. You with me? Like Warwick Dunn, right? Um, some other guys. And uh, those names, this would be like the wall of fame for them. What Stephen is saying to the Jewish leaders is, no, I'm not disrespecting the prophets and the patriarchs. I'm right in line with them. It's like he goes around, and you're going to see, he begins to build a case of all the, all the retired numbers in the Jewish history. And he goes up and he just, he just does a little bow to them. He taps their number and says, no, I respect Abraham. 
just like you. In fact, let me interpret his story for you. Let me show you what God was doing. He starts with Abraham. There's one number on the Hall of Fame, right? Bang. Isaac, Jacob. You can't get more Hall of Fame than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the 12 patriarchs. And not only is he touching the people of God to align himself with their teaching, but he's showing something else. Remember the charge? Jesus said he's going to destroy the temple. This is the temple where God lives. You can't destroy this. And so Stephen begins to make the case that God was never interested only in a particular place of worship. So what does he say? Note the places that he says. Abraham, when he was in Mesopotamia, right? Before he lived in. Why all this geography, Stephen? Is he just, a, is he just a, an atlas nerd? Anybody else a map nerd? You go on a vacation, you're like the guy with the paper map still, looking through it. I'm totally that kid. Why all these things in it? As a side note, this is nerdy church history. Apparently George Whitfield is one of the most powerful evangelists of the last couple hundred years. Apparently he spoke with such power, he was such an orator, such a, such a master of rhetoric, that people would come who were not even Christians just to listen to him speak. And one of the most popular actors of the day is recorded as saying, this would be like Tom Hanks sort of, went to listen to him. And he said that he would give anything to be able to speak like Whitfield, who, he said, would cause the people to weep at the mere mention of Mesopotamia. <laughs> that word apparently was so powerful from Whitfield that people would, would weep. I know that is the nerdiest church history lesson of all time, but... Um, if you are ever with a really dorky, trivial pursuit crowd, it might help you out. So Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and they lived in Haran, and then he went out, and God said to him, come from this land and go to that land. And then he promised the people, you'll be sojourners in this land. You notice all the times that Stephen's mentioning place? Why? Because all these different places, God was with Abraham. You see this? God is not tied to a particular place. When God went out to meet Abraham. He sought him in Mesopotamia and directed him to another place. God is with him. God is with him in all these places. All right, we've got to move on to the next section. We're moving on to another wall in Doak now, right? We just went through the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob number retired section. We're going on to another one in verse 9 of chapter 7. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him. And rescued him out of all of his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob's father and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. But as, at the, as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive." So now he's lining himself up with Joseph, right? Another one of the people of God. And Stephen is interpreting for them, this is what God has been up to. I'm not disrespecting our tradition. I'm not disrespecting the people. Joseph is on the list. 
This is the most clear, but I think we can see it in both as well. In addition to Joseph being people and the place, now where are God's people meeting God? Where is God taking them? Into Egypt, right? Did God go with them? Yes. Because God does not dwell in a house built by human hands. That's where it's going, right? He goes with them. And in addition to people in place, we sign, this is the most obvious initial place where there's a promise. The promise to Joseph was that this whole episode was going to be to rescue him out of his afflictions. Rescue is the promise. There's a promise that weaves its way all the way through, not only in the people and the patriarchs and all the places, but everywhere God meets his people in whatever place, he promises redemption. He promises to rescue them. You saw it with Abraham. I will judge the nation that they serve. And after that, you will come out and worship me in this place. Joseph will be rescued, saved from famine. This is the promise of God to his people. Over and over and over again, Stephen is weaving this story. And now he hits sort of the big one. There's a reason he takes so long with Moses, because Moses was the one that they charged him with. Now, you know this crowd was sort of crazy when they're just bringing up Trump charges, right? Just sort of, they're just trumped up sort of like fake charges. And they're grabbing anything that will incite the people the most. There's some things that would annoy you but not drive you to rage, right? What if I told you, you really ought to dislike this person? You just, you really ought to. In fact, I want to stir up a mob. To do, and then you say, well, what did he do? Well, let me tell you something. I caught him jaywalking on 8th Avenue, right? You'd be like, that's kind of annoying, maybe, if I was in my car and had to slow down or something. I don't know, right? You know what? I saw this person. He had a cup that he took from Burger King and he kept it in his car and he went and got a free refill without paying. You'd be like, that's annoying. It's kind of stealing. It's bad, right? These guys are bringing out the most, like Moses. Like if you disrespected Moses, this is the biggest thing ever. This would be like, you need to hate this guy because he canceled Christmas and he punched a baby, and he like, he like did all these just horrific things. Like this is, the, this is Mount Moses, right? This is, you have to deal with Moses, because if you're disrespecting Moses, and you're saying this guy's going to destroy the temple, you're done with. And so Stephen, starting in verse 20 of Acts chapter 7, starts to handle Moses. He starts to handle the person of Moses. I want you to know it. People, place, promises. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Where did we see that phrase? Luke 24. Jesus was mighty in words and deeds. Verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. 
When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning. I have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You see how Stephen is driving at Jesus? You're rejecting Jesus like they rejected Moses. Moses said, I would send a brother. Do you see where this is going? Back at verse 38. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angels who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. They made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, the images that you made to worship. And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. I'm going to stop there again. Did you note the people? He's lining himself up under Moses and interpreting Moses as a man who was both a ruler and a judge, and yet the people couldn't see it. God had sent them their Redeemer, and the people couldn't see it. That's the point that Stephen's making. In other words, Stephen is lining himself up under these people. And it wasn't just Moses. There's knock his number, his tunic, whatever it was, retired. Aaron as well, just bringing out all the greats. All these names, also the places. What's happening now? Moses begins in Egypt, exiles to Midian, comes back from there to Egypt, then back out into the wilderness. Here's the question about place. Did God meet them in those places? Yes, Stephen is saying. Yes, God is not a God who dwells in a place made by human hands. God was there in the tent of witness as well. And the promise had been there all along. Verse 25, what was the promise? God was giving them salvation by His hand. Here's the irony of it. The promise has been there all along to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. It's now here directly in Moses. God was giving them salvation by His hand. And what does the end of verse 25 say? But they did not understand. They did not understand. Can you see Stephen preaching this? standing before a mob of his Jewish brothers, charging him with blasphemy, knowing he has fullness of life and the Redeemer, the Ruler, the Judge, Jesus, who's been sent. And he's crying out to them and saying, God has given you salvation by His hand and you do not understand. 
nerdy preacher types may say, like, that'll preach, right? You see why Stephen is going to this history? That'll preach in his moment of need. People and places and promises. Stephen is acting consistently. Jesus is consistent with the way that God works. Verse 45. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua. Retired the number. When they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God, asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High, this is, this is one of the responses that he makes the most clearly. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What is, my, what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And this is the thread that Stephen has to sort of, the needle that he has to sort of thread through here. God had commanded David to build a house. The temple was not an act of disobedience. Solomon built it exactly. Houses of worship can be beautiful and fine, and they were of use. The point that Stephen's making is is that God is not tied to them. And what the Jews had begun to believe, the leadership especially, is that because they had a house, they could now control God. God was contained neatly in the temple. Stop saying this stuff about this temple being destroyed and God's presence coming down by His Spirit. When you say these things, it makes us nervous. We lose power. The temple's gone. How can we control and contain God? Stephen is saying to them, don't you see it's been there all along? Yes, God said build a temple and a house of worship is beautiful and should be enjoyed, but do not mistake the fact that God dwells there as though you could contain him. Now, this is right at the point in the sermon when it's just been masterful, right? And you're thinking to yourself, like, what an amazing thing. Guys are staring at him. They're so angry. And you'd think that maybe he just wants to, he wants to validate his own understanding of Jewish history, maybe backpedal a little bit and say, when Jesus was talking about destroying the temple, what he really meant was that he would become a better temple and that we would have access to God through him because of the Holy Spirit, right? You'd think that. But know what Stephen does. He changes language very subtly. And in verse 51, he's not talking about our fathers anymore, our Abraham, our Moses. He looks directly at those who had hard hearts and refused to receive this ruler and this judge, this redeemer in Jesus. And he says to them, you stiff-necked people. Do you hear echoes of Jesus talking to his disciples as he walks? Oh, foolish ones. Your heart is so hesitant to believe that God has redeemed you through me. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, who received... who. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. In a short period of time, three verses, he calls them stiff-necked, uncircumcised, which to a Jew would have been a massive deal. In other words, you're outside of the covenant. You resist the Holy Spirit. And he's using words always. Anyone in a, anyone in a marriage and know how explosive that word is? <laughs> you always forget the trash. You always eat all the grapes or whatever, Right? Every marital counseling session in the history of the world says, like, 
You should avoid explosive words. Always is in there. You always resisted the Holy Spirit. You're just like your fathers who did that. You persecute the prophets. You killed those who make the way for Jesus. Not only that, oh yeah, you betrayed and murdered Jesus as well. And more so, you're lawbreakers. Stephen pulls no punches. He gets right to the heart of things. He feared them having an eternity and rebellion apart from God more than he feared his own death. Do you see the thing that happened in his teaching there? He did not fear losing the applause and adulation. He did not fear even his own breath being taken from his lungs. He did not fear those things because he feared more mishandling or misinterpreting and not calling people to repentance before the God of the universe. So, of course, right, has there ever been a more obvious moment than verse 54? I said one time a year ago that this little phrase that I learned in texting, LDO, like, like, duh, obviously, right? 54, if you said these things to a group of people who were already enraged and staring at you, verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged. Ever been this angry? They ground their teeth at him. What does that even mean, right? Can you get a picture of this? Can you even see it? At first, I, th- I thought of them as more like rabid dogs, not grinding their teeth, more like snapping their teeth. Like that. That seemed a little over the top. So, I guess just like, you know what I mean? I, that's angry. They are furious. And what happens when this crazy, furious mob is bearing down on him? God gives him grace to look away from his own problems and his own fear and his own danger. And he looks up and he's given a vision of God, full of the Holy Spirit. He gazes into heaven. He sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I want to pause there for a moment and just say this. When I get to, when I get to heaven, there's a lot of things that I just want to, I want to know. There's a lot of things that if, like, if I could read, there's sections of the Bible where I just think, like, this information would have been helpful. You know? I would ask those things. You know, the picture of Jesus right now is he's seated at the right hand of God. That's the language all throughout Scripture. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's seated at the right hand of God. And what an amazing moment, Stephen, boldly proclaiming, just about to become the first martyr of the, of the church. He gazes into heaven. Jesus standing. If this was me writing this, I would have so many footnotes and commas and say, why All we can do is infer, but it seems like there's a measure of respect here of Jesus almost saying of welcoming, of honoring, right? If a dignitary came in, if I'm doing a wedding here right now and holding it and the door's open and the bride starts to come, what happens? Everyone stands. If you're in your home and someone is coming in to say welcome, the guest of the home stands to welcome those who come. And somehow in the midst of this, Stephen looks up, full of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, he who has a name that is above every other name, standing to welcome him home. I want to ask about this. I want to say, you were standing? Is that normal? Why did that happen? What's going on? Because it's astounding to me. And despite this vision, they cried out with a loud voice. You ever been this angry? 57, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. I'm like, what does this look like? It's like, ah, <laughs> like, and then run, and then run at someone. 
Three-year-olds are reading this saying like, he's really out of control, right? Seriously, this is a fit to end all fits. These people are enraged. And we find their gruesome end. Verse 58, they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose in that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen, made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul will, of course, become an intricate an integral part of the rest of the book. For now, I want to note again the common threads between Stephen and Jesus' life. Did you, did, you, did you hear Jesus in the midst of this? Receive my spirit. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Stephen is a powerful witness to Jesus Christ, not just because he knew in his head the truth of the gospel. He lived and ultimately died like Jesus. He died having false trumped up charges brought against him. He died perfectly obeying God. He did everything right, but the everything went wrong. This should be an instructive note for us. Do you know that it's possible to do everything right, to obey God all the way down to the end, and you are not guaranteed a highway of beautiful life with flowers and candy canes? Stephen obeyed. His obedience brought him to a gruesome, bloody death. Like Jesus, innocent, and brought before the court with false charges. He spoke and commented on the patriarchs. The charges were very similar. He said he was before Abraham, they said of Jesus. Stephen, of course, pictures and gives them an idea of Abraham's life and his place in the promise. They both die a gruesome death. And of course, somehow Stephen has the amazing sweetness of spirit to pray for those who are executing him. This is exactly how Jesus died. And I think for whatever reason, I don't believe this is going to be the normal picture of a Christian's death, but for whatever reason, we're given a powerful idea of God's presence with those who are dying of the welcome that God gives to Stephen, who becomes the martyr of the church. Martyr is the Greek word for witness in the New Testament. What a powerful witness from Stephen to not only declare things about Jesus, but to die like him. I think it's fair for us to say that death death for Stephen was not an enemy. Death, death did not become an enemy. We sang words here today, like, like death, where's your victory? Hell's where you're staying, or sin, where's your sting? I can't remember how it was worded in this song. Stephen pictures that for us. There's something we can infer that it seems like God meets those who are his own with a special sweetness at death. I want to read you this quote. There's a theologian a couple hundred years ago, and this was recorded in a sermon that I read about this this week. And it made me think of Stephen, so I included it. Listen to the sweetness that this man experienced as he approached death. The sense of divine, divine favor increases in me every moment, he said. The pain, my pains are tolerable and my joys inestimable. 
our word, inestimable. I am no more vexed with earthly cares. I remember when any new book came out. He was a theology nerd. That's why he's saying this. I remember when any new book came out, how earnestly I have longed after it, but now all that is but dust. You are my all, O Lord. My good is to approach you. Oh, what a library I have in God, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You are the teacher of spirits. I have learned more divinity in these ten days that you have come to visit me than I did in fifty years before. And commenting on this, this pastor said that the hour of death had become a servant of the saint. It was his teacher, his sanctifier, and his kindler of worship. Death was not feared by Stephen because Jesus was welcoming him home. That's what that meant. There is sadness in this. It is gruesome. There are questions. We're going to see how this is used to scatter the church and spread the gospel across the land there. God uses even grotesque things like this. But in the end, we must learn from Stephen that God gave him sweetness even in his death because Jesus overcame the last enemy. That is the grave itself. That is the promise that we're given. At the end of the day, we must understand that Jesus is exactly in line with God's work of the Old Testament. Jesus secured for himself the people of God. He was all of the fulfillment to bring about the children of Abraham that were promised, right? He is a better Moses Hebrews tells us. He is the fulfillment of every promise that God has ever given for redemption. Isn't that what Corinthians tells us? Every promise of God is yes and amen in Him. There's a reason we're so Jesus-centric. And at the end of the day, Jesus died and rose and ascended so that God could commune with us, not in a place built with human hands, that the Holy Spirit would come and he would indwell you as his people. That's the message that Stephen is giving. And he was, he was killed for it. I want to pray for us before we come to the communion table. I want to pray that you'd find strength to suffer 